Welcome to the All In Gospel Bible Study. Each week, we move chapter by chapter through the Bible towards a comprehensive understanding of what the Bible teaches. All In Gospel is recorded live in White Bear Lake, Minnesota, featuring Dr. Sean Dickers. You can support this broadcast by subscribing or donating at the allingospel.com website. where we're at. Uh, Jesus has taught that to be the first in the kingdom, the disciples need to serve. And that's where we just kind of left off with their teaching. That teaching happened on the way to Jerusalem. And as we go through verse 22 today, there's a, an interesting kind of setup here, and I don't think I've seen anything like it. Um, and it's, it, I think it's where I get the case that Mark is writing a lot of the teachings that Peter has heard. And he's taking those teachings and he's wrapping them up. Sometimes when people give the same speech over and over and over again, they get favorite parts or favorite passages. And they build up into something when when they get there, everybody who knows that person and has heard Peter teach a bunch, they're like, oh, here it comes. This is his thing. And it's that spiel that, that Peter does. There's a When you look at Mark chapter 11, there's a Greek word chi, and in from verse 1 to verse 22, um, it's used as the first word of every single verse in the Greek. Now, the English translators, that feels a little redundant. So they'll put then and if, or they'll just skip the word. Like, honestly, a lot of those sentences in your translation, they wouldn't put it. Kai is a super common word. And the only verse, the verse 10 is like part of a larger quote, if you look at that. And Kai isn't used at the beginning of verse 10, but every other verse, it's Kai at the beginning of every sentence. So when Peter gets to this part oratorically, um, the word Kai then becomes, it, it's again, it's a super common word. It's the word and, right? And we've seen Mark use the word and a lot, and this, and that. But when you use it as the first word of the sentence, it's, it's grammatically not appropriate even in the Greek, the same way it is in the English. You don't start a sentence with and. But when you do it oratorically and you start every sentence with the word and, and then Grant did this, and Tom did this, and Lisa did that, and this did that, and this did that, and this the 22 times, the thing you say at the end is the punchline. And it's going to build up to that. So as you go through here and you see then or and at the beginning of the sentence, just know that Mark is clearly connecting this entry, the, the fig tree, the cleansing, um, and the entry into Jerusalem. All of these things are part of the same point for, for Peter, and it ends with a conclusion. So, And they seem really disparate when you just kind of read through it in the English. But think of this like an oratorical masterpiece. This is written like a song. And when he's rolling and he's going and Peter's pre, it's like, preach it, Peter. And that's what we're going through when he goes through and Jesus came up into the city and the fig tree thing happened and he kicked the people out of the temple and this, and it's all going to wrap up to that verse 22. Again, we're kind of doing the whole section here before we start reading, have faith in God. And when he says that, when he says have faith in God after talking about Jesus for 22 verses, it's very clear that Peter's making the claim at the same point in the ministry that Jesus kind of opens up about his deity, like he accepts the praise of the people for the first time, Peter's doing the same thing oratorically. 
And, and it, it makes for an, an absolutely dis- delightful set of stories to go through. This was the exclamation point. So um, lots of cross-references today. Get ready. Have your pen ready to go. Uh, we're going to bounce around the Bible because Peter is absolutely loading it on right here. Um, so get ready for Mark chapter 11. And we'll do the first 22 verses, which are part of this spiel that Peter has when he teaches. Um, so again, verse one, we have, I have now in my translation, it's, and when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethphage and Bethany and the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples and he said to them, go into the village opposite you. As soon as you've entered it, you'll find a colt tied on which no one has sat, loose it and bring it to me. And if anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say the Lord has need of it. And immediately he will send it there. So we get into these stories, and by tradition, this is what we call Palm Sunday, or the triumphant en- entry, or I like to call it Pick Your Lamb Day, um, because today's the day before Passover that all the families would pick out their lamb. And you'd, and we've studied this. We've been through the, the Old Testament, the Torah, and you select your lamb so that you can bring your baby lamb into your house. We affectionately call that lamb Fluffy, and you bring it into the home. And you have it sleep with you and your family for a number of days before you butcher it and eat it as a family. It's, it's at, and for five-year-olds, this is just torture. But for the Jewish people, it's, it's given them a, a sense of that there's a price that needs to be paid for their life. And Passover is all about paying that price because that poor, sweet, fluffy little lamb is going to pay the price for your sins. And so thinking of a Jewish tradition that has lasted hundreds of years at this point, being built up on where kids are learning that from a very young age. There must be a price paid for your life. A Roman reader doesn't know or care about the sacrificial system of the Jews. All the Roman reader knows is that this is preparation day. It's a, it's a huge day. All of the Jewish people migrate to Jerusalem on this day. It's the great migration. And so from the Roman sense, this is a, a time of stress and anxiety because the people that you're ruling over and collecting taxes from are gathering en masse. And so for the Roman leadership, this would be a very stressful time when there could be revolution, there could be turmoil, there could be those kinds of things. So Mark skips the miraculous aspects of Preparation Day instead of the Lamb of God connection. He just kind of builds up to what happens there. And he goes right to this story about the colt and the donkey. So it's interesting. Bethphage, Bethany are both suburbs of Jerusalem. Bethany's directly over the hill of the Mount of Olives. So when you're in Jerusalem and you look across the Kidron and you see the Mount of Olives, what's over that hill was a town called uh, Bethany. It's maybe a 30-minute walk to Jerusalem. Like, it's not far by our standards at all. Um, Verse 2 says for them to find a colt. Again, if we're trying to read this through a Roman lens, why would he... Why would a triumphant entry be on a colt, an unridden baby horse, just old enough to hold somebody riding on it? Uh, Not a war stallion, a big, you know, a Roman general coming home from a conquering place would be riding the most majestic, biggest horse they could find. And Jesus picks a very humble horse, a colt. Matthew points out that there's a second animal involved here too. When you read the Matthew account, it's a colt and a donkey because the donkey adds a prophetic aspect that gets fulfilled. So there's actually two animals that are here. And Jesus rides in. Zechariah 9.9, Behold, your king comes to you. He is just, having salvation, lowly and riding upon an ass, and upon a colt, the foal of an ass. 
So when you look at the Zechariah nine nine proverb, there's two animals in that in the er, prophecy, not proverb. There's two animals there. So when Matthew's writing this story, he's writing it for a Jewish audience who needs to see that there were two animals being gathered. But the donkey is irrelevant to the Roman reader, and Mark and Peter just they leave it out. So as Jesus arranges this, he sets up the idea of becoming a spectacle. Throughout Mark, Jesus has always walked away from the multitudes. He said to them, it's not my time yet. Please don't talk about me. But on this day, he actually makes arrangements to come riding in on a colt. And so there's this idea that there's a fulfillment aspect here that does stand out. They make a point of the word tied and loosed. Um, notice the use of tied and loosed. They loosed it. They tied it. This is likely a reminder for Peter that it was very specific that there would be a loosing of something. And from the Roman perspective, again, they're on edge with rebellion on a Messiah king that's been prophesied. Genesis 49.10, the scepter, that image of rulership, shall not depart from Judah nor a lawgiver from between his feet until Shiloh comes, and to him the obedience of the people, binding his donkey to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. Again, that could be read as two animals. He washed his garments in wine and his clothes in the blood of grapes. The Genesis prophecy is the one the Romans are worried about. When this Messiah comes, that wine is an image of blood, that Jesus will come as a conquering general. And so the idea of Messiah is something that um, the Jews are anxious about. Most Jews believe the Messiah will be a military leader, and even the Romans are aware of this. So the fact that he's coming in and he's riding in on that colt, that's an image that's very strong for the Jews, but it's also something the Romans are worried about problems. And so that would perk their ears up. Here's the key, or the miraculous part. Um, this cult is one on which no one has sat. You see that? Jesus is the first, but if you know anything about horses, when a horse hasn't been ridden before, the fact that it would just be led away peacefully, without like kicking people and whatnot, this is a miracle. And it's a very subtle miracle. But an unridden horse has to get broken in, if you know anything about animals. So the fact that this is a horse that hasn't been broken in um, and the fact that the disciples are able to loose it and it doesn't just run for the hills, like, heck, we loose the dog and he's just gone, right? If there weren't fences, I don't know how far that dog would roam. And the same thing's true of the horse, only a lot faster and a lot further. So the fact that they loose it is a kind of a, a highlight in this passage. And for in a society where everybody's car is a horse or a colt or a donkey, that everybody who's reading this in the first century knows exactly what Mark is saying here. They loosed this thing and it didn't run. It went straight to Jesus. So you got this idea. Then verse 3, it says the Lord has need of it. Um, so far, Jesus is, is kind of not orchestrated things, but it's either the case that he had pre-planned or prepared this with the people that owned the cult, or miraculously they've had a dream. Or there's some reason why people that aren't mentioned here just give up their... These are valuable pieces of property. It's like if somebody came walking up the driveway and just started to take my car. And they somehow or another had keys to it. Let's just imagine this hypothetically. You would go out and say, hey, what are you doing here? And then they say, the Lord has need of it. And you go, oh, okay, have fun. I mean, that's the situation here. This is crazy. So the, the idea that either Jesus has set this up, non-miraculous... 
Or these people absolutely know who the Lord is. First of all, Jesus hasn't typically gone by the name Lord so far in the book of Mark. So he's proclaiming himself. And he does it quietly here at first, and then we get there. Verse 4 starts with the word Kai. Then, or and, they went their way and found the colt tied by the door on the street, and they loosed it. Kai, some of those who stood there said to them, what are you doing, loosing the colt? Kai, they spoke to them just as Jesus commanded. Kai, they let them go. You hear the rhythm of this? Like in the Greek, this is just, it's just building. There's, there's, a, there's a foaming going on here. Jesus predicted this conversation. It goes exactly like he said it would. Um, these folks willingly let Jesus have this. Notice that the loosing continues to get used. They loosed it, and then this happens. Um, so they don't have a bolting colt. They have a, an, a, an unridden colt that's ready to be ridden or subdued to the Lord. Um, so they let them go, and the disciples do this. They, they both fit here. Um, it says, so they let them go and not it go. It's interesting because there, people say, well, there's, there's a difference between Matthew and Mark. Actually, Mark is not, it, it, you know, uses the word them, plural. So there is a reference to multiple animals here in Mark, but it's just he's not highlighting the, the donkey that goes with. Verse 7, Kai, they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their clothes on it. Kai, he sat on it. Kai, many spread their clothes on the road, and others cut down leafy branches from the trees and spread them on the road. So these are images of a king coming to town. And this is, we don't do a lot of this. At the end of World War II, when all the soldiers came home on the boats, there was one day where a ton of them came home at once, and New York was lit up. So there's photos of this, right? That sailor kissing the girl in the middle of Times Square. It's a ticker tape parade. There's things floating from the buildings. This is what the Romans called. The Romans started this tradition. It's called a triumphant entry. And so in Roman tradition... When, people, when a conquering general or a Caesar shows up in town, they are meant to be welcomed by the people in the citizenry, welcoming home their champion general. So the images here would stand out much more to a Roman reader than it would to a Jewish reader. The key here is that Jesus is recognized as a king, and he was. So it says, and many, verse 8, Cestus Gallus, the census numbers from the Roman histories, show there were 800,000 people in Jerusalem for Passover. That's bolstering the population of the city well beyond what it normally has. So when it says many here, like in verse 8, that's a significant many that's there. They're camping. They're outside the city all over the place. All the hotels and inns get filled up. Um, and the many here might be a modest word. Jesus then becomes this sensation. And we've seen in Mark over and over and over again, the crowds show up when, when Jesus gets into any populated area. Everyone in this area of the world has heard of him. They know he's a healer. They know he's a rabbi that teaches. They know that he's had some run-ins with the Pharisees and scribes. So there's kind of this fascination. And when it's Passover and, and the whispers, hey, Jesus is coming. He's walking into town. That's Jesus coming up the road. The kids come out. Families run out. Let's go take a look at this guy. It doesn't mean they're following Jesus, but it does mean they're going to go see this person that has this supernatural ability to heal and know the future and know people's minds. So they're thinking this is the Messiah. This is the time. So in the same token that the Romans are getting a little more antsy, having many people run out to welcome this guy, okay, this is setting the Romans on edge. We need to know that tone is there. Um, 
So we have this idea here that they put clothes on the road. Uh, this is a great honor. It's something you do for a king or a Caesar. It is not something you do for a carpenter from Nazareth at all. And not only that, he's riding on the donkey. So this is, it's not even his feet touching the ground. It's the donkey walking on your clothing. Coats were expensive. They were multi-use. They were what you slept on as a bedroll. They're what you covered up with at night. So when people are throwing their coats or their clothes out in the road, we should just pay attention to the fact that that dirties the clothes. It means they're going to have to wash them before they use them. So it's a great inconvenience to put your clothes out so that a donkey can walk over it. It's a massive honor, but you can see that the tone of the mob here is that we're welcoming our Messiah. It's time to fight the Romans. And they're building this up. Then it says they cut down leafy branches. Same idea here. If you don't have a coat that you can put on the road, this is kind of, I think, kind of sweet. With the offering system for the Jews, you could bring an oxen for offering, but if you were poor, you could go catch a dove and bring a dove to the temple. So even if you had no money, you could put the work in and bring something that would honor the, the Lord God Almighty. Same thing's true with this. If you didn't have a coat to put down on the road, then you could honor the king or the Caesar by going and cutting down a leafy branch and putting it down on the, you can trade work for money and resources. So if you got time, you can put that in. Both of these serve the same purpose. In the, in the ancient world, you had paver stones, but you also had tons of dirt. And when you go riding in and there's a procession, what happens is the dust rises up. So the person at the back of the line has got a face full of dust. It still happens if you like go three-wheeling with somebody else. You never want to be the second person. It's nicer to be up in front. So the idea of putting things on the road, really the purpose of that is it keeps the dust down for the crowd and you honor that person. So why are they so ready to praise Jesus today? Why today and why not yesterday? Why were, not, why were thousands of people not running out yesterday to go do something like this for Jesus? This isn't the first time Jesus shows up in Jerusalem. When you read Luke or Matthew, he came in every year for Passover. Why this year? Why is this the big year? Because last year they knew he was a miracle worker and a rabbi, and they didn't do this, but they did it this year. What's the purpose of that? Now, I know the ladies have been doing Daniel. So if you want to go to Daniel chapter 9, we can see why this was a big day for them. Um, because they were, they were Bible students. They knew what was in the Old Testament, and they knew the prophecies of Daniel. Daniel 9, verse 25 Know therefore and understand. And so this is one of those things. God does put things in the Bible for scholars. He puts things in the Bible for five-year-olds too. But he puts things in here for people that like to understand and dig this stuff through. Going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks. If you add seven and 62, you get 69 weeks. If you then take those weeks out and treat them as a, a week in the Hebrew is a period of time that equals seven. So it could be seven days in a week or seven years in a week. And it was used interchangeably. In this case with Daniel, I'm sure that the, the days went by and they're like, oh, Messiah didn't show up. So then they go immediately to the years interpretation. So if you do 69, um, 69 weeks of years, that's 483 years. Do you follow me so far? Okay. If you take 430, 83 years on a Jewish calendar, not an, an American calendar, but if you do it on a Jewish calendar, and this is where I got to trust people that this number works, then 483 years is 173,880 days. In other words, from the order to rebuild Jerusalem, there's 1,700, 
173,880 days until Messiah is supposed to show up. And we know from Genesis that guy's supposed to come walking up a hill on a colt. He's riding on a, a colt and a donkey next to him. So two animals. I don't know if that's like one butt cheek per animal or if he's taking turns on each animal. I don't know how that works. Um, but then it says in Daniel, verse 26, and after 62 weeks, Messiah shall be cut off, but not for himself. Wow. It's like they, they saw Messiah prince, but they didn't read the next verse. Jesus is the only one here saying, I'm going up to Jerusalem, so I will be killed. And he's reading these prophecies, and this is part of where Jesus, it's not miraculous. If he studied the word, he knows that this trip up the hill is on this day is important, which is why he made arrangements for the colt and the donkey. Maybe it's why that family had a colt and a donkey, and they're like, no, 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 don't ride the colt. It has to be an unridden colt. That's a big deal. So maybe this family was a group of Bible students, and they just studied the word together in their living room, and they knew that this was a big day, and they're like, you know, this is something we can do. We can just have a colt and a donkey here. If God wants to use it, he can use it. And sure enough, two people come up saying the Lord wants to use it. And they're like, yeah. See, like maybe there was no arrangement whatsoever. And I like to think God works like that sometimes. But here's the thing. If you go from the time of um, Persia giving the order for the Israelites to rebuild Jerusalem, and you counted out the days, to, and, and you stood on the wall of Jerusalem, and you looked out over the wall, looking up down the hill, You'd say, okay, Messiah is supposed to be here today. What you would see walking up the hill on that day is Jesus walking up the hill on a colt and a donkey. This is why they're cheering and why they didn't cheer last year. Last year, they're like, ah, we have another 300 and whatever days it is in the Hebrew calendar. So it's not this year, it's next year. It's amazing how God gave them exactly what they needed to know. Here's the crazy part. They had half of the prophecy that we have today about Jesus' second coming. A student of the Bible should have, Jesus says you won't know the day or the hour. The reason he says that is because for his first coming, they did know the day. They absolutely knew the day. It was given to them mathematically. So that's why they're out cheering. It's, I mean, I'm sure there were people like for the 4th of July parade, you go out early to kind of mark out your spot with a blanket and a lawn chair. There were people going out to the wall of Jerusalem, sitting at the Golden Gate, saying, I'm going to mark out a spot and I want to be here. I'm going to sit here all day and wait for the king to come. And sure enough, this guy named Jesus, miracle worker, blessed by God, here he comes walking up the hill and you're like, kids, get my coat. I want to put my coat out for the king. This is it. There would have been huge excitement. They're singing songs, verse 9. Then those who went before and those who followed cried out, saying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the kingdom of our father David that comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. I mean, they're singing the Hallel songs. They're shouting it out. This is just a massive day. They'd bring their instruments. They'd sing it. The Romans would be sitting in their keep going, what's the hubbub down by the wall? Oh, that Jesus guy is showing up. Dang, the, everything gets on edge from that perspective. The scribes and the Pharisees, they hate this guy. And they're all giving him praise and they're all giving him honor. If you read this story in Matthew, they come out and they try to stop the crowd. Stop doing this. And they're yelling at people. So you got nasty people yelling and screaming, and you, but you got the kids shouting and praising the Lord with instruments and with loud voices. You can't stop it. Jesus typically discourages the title and the role until this moment. Now he's not only accepting it, he's, he's receiving it. So he's, Luke tells it like, 
the story with the religious leaders and Mark just focuses on the fact that he came in in a Roman style triumphant entry, a Roman style entry that was not known when the prophecies were written because Romans didn't exist when the prophecies were written. So he's coming in in a language that the Romans would understand as a, a returning general, a conquering warlord. So these quotes that are in verse 9 and 10, they're from the Halal songs. This is the, the word 9 starts with the word Kai. 10 does not because I think it's part of the quote. It wouldn't work there. Um, you would sing this song every year. Halal songs were like our Christmas carols. And when you get 50, I got to tell you, there's some Christmas carols that you just, you get sick of. This is one that they're singing at the top of their lungs with a revived verve, but they've heard this song their whole life. There's a set of songs that you sing on the way up to the temple. In fact, the temple steps have been dug out. I was just watching videos this week. It's kind of cool because last time I was in Israel was 25 years ago, and all they had was like five of these steps. These are steps that existed in the first century. Jesus would have walked on these steps, and it's kind of a cool feeling when you're looking at the, the stones there, and you're like, oh, Jesus' foot would have touched that stone. So here's the thing, they've dug out acres around that now, like the whole area's opened up. And one of the things with the stairs is when we go up a staircase, we measure them perfectly to fit so you can go up them without thinking, right? Unless you get old and you got to think so you don't trip. These stairs, they did it, um, they staggered the distances of them so that you couldn't run up the stairs. If you did, you'd trip and fall. The whole point was you're supposed to go up singing the halal songs and you're supposed to go up slowly and meditate on the Lord God while you went up to his temple. So they're going up this, this path and they're doing this. They're quoting the halal songs. They're familiar to everybody. The Jewish people could all join in and sing. Um, and he's riding up to the gates with this massive voice singing it. Um, this is the passage it's from. I want, because they're giving us this short little clip in verse 9 and 10, but listen to the song they're singing. Again, if I sang, you know, we three kings, I wouldn't have to quote the rest of the song. You're already thinking the rest of the song in your head. A Jewish reader for the book of Mark would be thinking the rest of Psalm 118 in their head. Go to Psalm 118 if you want to. I'm still reading a selection of it. There's more to this. They're singing a messianic song. And the quote we get in 9 and 10 is just a snippet of it. So Psalm 118, if you don't know where Psalms are, it's just split the middle of your Bible and it's right smack dab in the middle. Open to me the gates of righteousness. So he's walking up to the gates, right? Open to me the gates of righteousness and I will go through them. I will praise the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord through which the righteous shall enter. I will praise you for you've answered me and have become my salvation. The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it's marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. Again, Psalms are songs. Verse 25, save now. In the Hebrew, that's Hosanna. I pray, O Lord, O Lord, I pray, send now prosperity. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We have blessed you from the house of the Lord. God is the Lord. Think of that. God is the Lord. They're connecting the two in this song. And he has given us light. John 1, 1, in the beginning was the word. The word was light. And then it says... Skipping down to verse 20. Uh, Bind the sacrifice with cords to the horns of the altar. That's in this song too. 
You are my God, I will praise you. You are my God, I will exalt you. Oh, give thanks to the Lord for he is good, for his mercy endures forever. We know these lines, right? These are lines that have endured for a reason. Spiritually, they resonate. So you can imagine that bouncing off the tan sandstone walls of Jerusalem like a giant like sound system echoing through the streets of the city. I think you would have heard this crowd on the other side of the city of Jerusalem. It would have been absolutely abundant. The kingdom of our father David is part of what they sang or the quote that's given. You know, you think of, may the Lord's kingdom come, may his will be done. Hosanna in the highest. This is all about Jesus. The God is our Lord. And when the, Jesus comes in as Lord and he's announced himself that way, he's coming in as king, as ruler, and as sovereign. The people are praising the Lord as told in scripture in word, song, and enthusiasm. Full fulfillment of prophecy and it's pleasing to God. You know, again, when we heard this story, one of the responses Jesus has to the Pharisees and scribes is, if these people weren't praising me right now, the rocks and stones would cry out. This is a moment in history that has had 3,000 years of God's planning that leads up to it. And I think it's going to have thousands of years after it that have God's planning as part of it. This is a key pivot moment in history. So this fulfills all the Roman details of a triumvirate, a returning victorious general coming in. A general could only come in with a triumvirate. You didn't deserve the parade if you didn't kill 5,000 people or more. Interesting number, isn't it? How many people did Jesus feed at the feeding of the 5,000? And Mark's included that number prior. So Jesus is flipping the Roman philosophy on its head. And when he comes in as a returning general, a, a Gentile reader would go, well, he didn't kill 5,000 people. And Mark would say, because ah, 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 he's Jewish. He did. He fed 5,000 people. Jesus isn't leading through that kind of kingdom. He's doing it in a very different kind of kingdom. So there's a parade, there's singing. It makes the feeding of the loaves even more significant in the book of Mark. A triumvirate in order, if you, you marched in first with your loot from the battle, then you would march all your prisoners out in front, and then you would march your armies, unit by unit, would come into the city. And then finally, the general would come in. And in Roman tradition, you would worship that person as though the gods had blessed him. So he becomes kind of a demigod. Like, read the Greek myths and stuff. There are humans that are more than human. So when this general kills 5,000 people, the Romans expected worship of the human, of the person. And then five, you'd go down to the arena, which is where the triumvirate would lead to. It would lead to the arena where people were slaughtered and killed. This one has the form of that, but the Romans would mock it. They would read this story and go, this Jesus, he thinks he's a triumphant, but he's not. He's a joke. He's a carpenter. And the Christian would say, ah, you don't even know what power is. You think power is a general where they get celebrated? They're a day of the week celebration. What Jesus did is he made a, you're making a mockery of Jesus. Jesus made a mockery of your triumvirate because he flipped it on its head. Jesus fed his 5,000. He talked about treasures in heaven, not on earth. There's no loot there. Then he set the prisoners free, which is a comment Mark has made so far in the book, because that's what he told John's disciples. Tell them that the prisoners are being set free. He has an army of people around him, but they're all volunteers. 
This fulfills prophecy. Psalm 110.3, your people shall be volunteers on the day of your power. He doesn't have soldiers. He has willing people that love him. This is power. And then four and five, he marches himself in the front instead of the prisoners because who's going to get killed here? Not the prisoners, the real person of power sacrifices himself for others. Mark has again and again, three times, made the point, if you want to be great in the kingdom of God, you have to be last. You have to serve all if you want to be the greatest. So Jesus marches in front, flips the Roman triumvirate on his head, and makes an absolute turning of philosophy from the Roman ideas and philosophy. So a Roman reader would see this and go, okay, this is a totally different way to think about a triumvirate. It's amazing. But everything fits. All the numbers fit. This is exactly what Peter's doing. It's part of why this is the, oratorically, this is the thing. In verse 11, Kai, Kai, Jesus went into Jerusalem and into the temple. Kai, when he had looked around at all the things as the hour was already late, he went out to Bethany with the 12. (laughs) Wait a sec, that's it? Huge triumphant story up through verse 10, and then he just turns around and goes home? What? But this is not the end of the story. Like, Peter's still building here. You think there's going to be some conquest? It says, so when he had looked around at, the Greek there is parablepo. Uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a word that goes with the triumvirate. So he's again following the model. A parablepo is to survey something or to take in the scene or inspect. The reason the soldiers came in first is because the a returning general would inspect his troops as he walked by them. And so there's this idea that they would survey and they would use it. Parablepo, Mark uses the word six times. Matthew and John don't use it ever in their entire gospel. John uses it once. This is a unique word to the book of Mark. It's unique to the Roman and the Greek language. So it's not necessarily a word, because Jewish people didn't survey things like that. In fact, they weren't even supposed to take a census without God's permission. So the idea that you'd come in and see over everything. So when it says this, so when he had parablepo at all the things, not the people, not the soldiers, but all the things, he's looking at the whole city. So we look at this and we're like, huh, this is interesting. I want to go back through the word parablepo in the book of Mark because he has surveyed before. In chapter 3, 5, he surveyed the hard-hearted people and he was angry about it. In chapter 3, verse 34, he surveyed his church family. He parablepoed the people around him and said, these are my brothers and these are my sisters. In chapter 5, verse 32, he parablepoed and saw the bleeding woman and said, that woman has faith. He surveyed everything and said, that one has faith right there. Chapter 9, verse 8, the disciples parablepoed after the transfiguration. They looked around, they surveyed everything, and all they saw was Jesus. And then in chapter 10, verse 23, after the rich man walked away, Jesus parablepoed and realizes he needed to teach something about this. So there's no article here afterwards. The word parablepo always has something after it. You you look around, you survey something. But in this, it doesn't have any word there. So in the English translation, it's left open like he took it all in. And that would be how I would translate this. He took it all in. Because there's no target of his survey. He's looking at the city, the building, the people, all things. It's a big, broad thing. Jesus rides up and he's seeing it. Now, here's the thing. Jesus, when he looks around, has seen hard hearts, church family, hurting folks, the flesh, and misunderstandings. But here he's seeing all of it at once. 
There are hard-hearted people. There are soft-hearted people. There are people that don't understand. There's an entire city, and the returning general reviews the city and takes stock of it. And after all of it, frankly, he starts to cry, right? And in other gospels, it talks about how he wept over the city. Matthew says that. So he sees the good, the bad, the ugly. He sees the state of things. And the rest of the chapter is a result of that inspection and what he's seeing there. So Mark, through Peter, points this all out as a king taking the city, taking stock of the city, and the scepter shouldn't depart from that person. He's now claimed the scepter of kingship. That's important. So we have another role to fill in the prophecies. And the rest of this sequence in verse 20 is him claiming three different roles. He's just claimed the kingship, but then in Deuteronomy 18, 15, this is about Messiah. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your midst. <laughs> Not just like me, it's going to be God himself. From your brethren, him sh you shall hear. So in day two, we see a figured with, with a, fig, a, a withered fig tree. Keep praying for me so I can say things. So in verse 11, he does the survey. He checks it out. He takes the mantle of king and he goes back. And then day two, he's going to walk up Kai, verse 12. Kai the next day. When they had come out of Bethany, he was hungry. Kai, seeing from after afar a fig tree having leaves, he went to see if perhaps he would find something on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. Kai responds to it. Jesus said, let no one eat fruit from you ever again. And Kai, his disciples, heard it. This will be bookended with the cleansing down in verse uh, in 15 through 19 is going to be the cleansing. But we're going to come back. The few notes before we come back to it, we'll talk about the withered fig tree in a little bit. But he says this to the fig tree because he was hungry. I think this is an interesting point. Mark emphasizes often the humanity of Jesus. He was fully human. You don't get hungry if you're an angel form or some sort of spirit form person. You get hungry if you have a stomach that wants food. So he's went back to Bethany. You know, there's, there's no room in the book of Mark for Gnosticism. It just doesn't exist. Jesus wasn't a spirit. He was a human being. So he gets hungry and he sees from afar. Like this is like me when I'm coming up to like a famous Dave's. I can see it from afar and I, can, and I start thinking about it. And then you're like, oh, that'd be good. And it, and it adds a little work for him to leave the path and walk to this fig tree. So... One thing you should know about fig trees, because we don't have a lot of them here in Minnesota, is if you see leaves on a fig tree, there are figs on the fig tree. The fruit develops before the leaves do. So when the leaves are out, there should be little fruits underneath the leaves. But from a distance, all you can see are the leaves. And you think, oh, those leaves look green. That tree's going to have figs on it. So if you're going to walk off the path and go out of your way, you know, even if it's 50 yards out of the way, that's, you know, you're leaving the path, you're stopping, you're kind of hiking over there, and then you get over there and there's nothing on the tree. That's a false tree. It's bearing false witness. It's saying, I got figs, come on over and have a bite. You walk all the way over there and what you get is nothing. It's just dead. So the hunger is real, the tree is real, but the lack of fruit is false advertising. It's very, it's got to be very disappointed. So again, I don't think Jesus is cursing the tree for himself. I, I've often said Jesus doesn't do miracles for himself. This one is very close. Really. Like, it seems like he's just ticked off at the tree. Um, I think Jesus had a little more well wherewithal to control his anger. 
So I think he's setting this up because he knows darn well what he's about to go up to do. He took in the city and surveyed it. And one of the things he saw was what was happening in the court of Gentiles, which is what he's coming up today. He probably went to bed that night and he's thinking about what they're doing in the court of Gentiles. And he's like, just, mm. I'm sure he's walking into Jerusalem today and he's got a mission. He knows what he's going to do. He's got to deal with that. That's the first priority is that temple has got to change. Because from a distance, it looks all shiny and white. Before Passover, the priests would go and clean the marble on the temple to a shine. So when the sun hit it, it would glow from a distance. Its leaves were beautiful. And there's actually pomegranates carved into the temple. It, has, it shows fruit on the outside of it. But then you get up close, and you don't see fruit on the inside. You see marketing and sales. And Jesus isn't happy. Marketing sales aren't bad, but they shouldn't be in that space. That space is supposed to be holy. It's supposed to look holy from a distance, and when you get there, it is holy. You should be hungry spiritually from a distance, and then you get to that temple, and you get fed exactly what you thought you were going to get fed when you get to the temple. You come into the courtyard, and there's singing over here, and there's a t there's Jack Hibbs teaching over there, and there's Chuck Smith, you know, because it's heaven, and he's over teaching in that corner. Man, if you want to go listen to some other great teachers from the past, they're all around the temple courtyard, and you're like, who do I listen to today? You get fed. But when you go to the temple and all you see is a bunch of graft, man, it's just sickening. It's disappointing. So I don't think this is for himself. He's thinking, I want to make it so nobody walks up to this tree again and goes off the road and out of their way to come visit this tree when it's just given false advertising. It's just faking people out. So it lures in the hungry and then gives them nothing to help them. Yeah, but we got smoke machines for worship and a fancy light show, but then there's no food there. So it's very shiny. So Jesus is setting up a lesson, but I also think he's claiming a second role here. When he says to the tree, um, "No one, let no one eat fruit from you ever again, that's a future statement or a prophetic statement. That when he speaks, it becomes truth. Because for a prophet, God tells the prophet what to say. The prophet says it, but because God told him, it becomes reality. So you look at the rain, the fire from heaven, the widow's son being resurrected. If you look at the ministry of Elijah and Elisha, you see mirrors of every miracle Jesus did through his ministry. Except for this one. It's Jesus setting up a different kind of lesson. We should note, if you want to get an image of figs in the Old Testament, you've got to go back to Adam and Eve. Remember what the leaves were used for with Adam and Eve? They were used to cover up their fruit. That's what they were used for. I'll keep it PG. So with Adam and Eve, like the first thing they do when they get to sin is they start covering up the fact that they're spiritually void. So the Passover in Jerusalem is a giant display or show. Uh, again, Josephus records that a quarter million lambs get murdered or not murdered. They get sacrificed at the temple. Like their barbecue is bigger than this room. Right? So there, it's a massive thing. 800,000 people. And up close after inspection, it's empty at this point in history. There's nothing to it. It's like Christmas in America today versus Christmas in America 50 years ago. There's a mer merchantilization of it. But Jerusalem is false advertising. You come from all over the world to hang out for Passover and you just get ripped off. Right? It's like going to the state fair. Only well, at least the state fair has good food. 
One could be hungry for God and get nothing out of the religious show of Passover in Jerusalem. It's just become a mess. God looks at some churches, I think, today and looks at the same thing. The church was given a very specific mission. So when you have a church and they put on a great display, but there's no fruit in it, that's a problem. You know, and, and I think it's a worse problem in other parts of the country. I think Minnesota has lots of great churches where there is fruit. People are growing. Their lives are changing. They're coming into a presence of the Lord, and it's wonderful. But God's not a fan of people that talk the talk, but they don't walk the walk. He's not a fan of it. So it's better to not fake it, because when Jesus talks to this tree, he's talking to something that said that there was fruit, but there wasn't fruit. They acted the part, but they didn't live the life. So before moving on, we should note that the role of priest, the high priest's job was to manage the affairs of the temple. That was their only job. So when you come in here, um, the role of the priest was to give glory to God Almighty and that God gets all the attention, God gets all the focus. There's an image in the Proverbs around figs and the priesthood. Proverbs 27, 18, whoever keeps a fig tree will eat its fruit. So he waits upon his master will be honored. So there is this idea that there's a connection in Proverbs between waiting on your master or serving them as a priest should do and the fact that the, there should be fruit that comes out of that tree. The goal was for the tree to bear fruit and that's how, how God intended it. That's how he made it to happen. So here the master shows up, that high, the new high priest shows up, takes in the city and he sees the temple that's not doing its job. So Psalms or Song of Solomon 2.13, <laughs> the fig tree puts forth her green figs and the vines, the tender grapes, they give a good smell. Rise up, my love, my fair one, and come away. This should be beautiful when you come to the temple. It should be an absolute blessing. You should leave with more than what you came with. Spiritually speaking, you should be absolutely ready to take on the year because you've just been blessed with the teaching of the word, the songs of the saints, the fellowships of families, a family reunion mixed with a barbecue, mixed with the best Bible teachers the country has to offer, mixed with prayer, worship, and sacrifice all at Passover. It should be awesome. So, uh, Kai, verse 15, Kai, they came to Jerusalem. Kai, Jesus went into the temple and began to drive out those who bought and sold in the temple and overturned the temples. Kai overturned the temples of the money changers and the seats of those who sold doves. Wait, that we'll get into it. And he would not allow anyone to carry wares through the temple. So, Verse 16, he's claiming high priest. Then he taught, saying to them, Is it not written? My house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you've made it a den of thieves. And the scribes and the chief priests heard it and sought that they might destroy him, for they feared him, because all the people were astonished at his teaching. Yeah, if somebody comes in and starts doing that, triumphant emphry goes with a king. The withering in the tree goes with prophet. Now we have a cleansing of the temple which goes with priest. And Mark's tying these together with Kai, Kai, Kai. Like it's a, it's a machine gun oratorical approach. It just keeps coming and coming. But he's now claimed all three roles. Psalm 110.4, the Lord has sworn and will not relent. You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Here he takes on the administration of the temple by cleaning it out. And he assumes the role of high priest by teaching in, in the courtyard. So what does a godly head priest do? 
He clears out and he teaches. Verse 15, he went into the temple. The first entry when you walk into the temple, he'd be standing in what's called the court of the Gentiles. Big open spaced area. It's for anybody to come in. Anybody can go into the court of the Gentiles. You don't have to be Jewish. You don't have to be, it doesn't matter what your gender is. Any human being that can move can go into the court of the Gentiles. Even if you can't move, people can carry you in. By the first century, this area is a, think about this, in a city that now has 800,000 people, you just start thinking, well, that's a waste of square footage to just leave that open to the people. So they start moving in sales booths. This happens at the Renfest, right? They just start setting up booths in all the open areas because they've got space, so they do it. And so the only difference is Renfest doesn't claim to be a house of God. This place does. So if you didn't want if you didn't want to go through the inconvenience of moving your own lamb up to the city of Jerusalem, you would then do an easier thing. This is the sin of Jeroboam. Let's make religion easier. So to make it easier, you could just walk to Jerusalem or ride, and then you could buy your sacrificial animal at the court of the Gentiles and then bring it up for sacrifice. So it saved you a lot of trouble and a lot of inconvenience. But sometimes the worship of God does come with trouble and inconvenience. Maybe that's the whole point of why God asked them to do that. You're living with that lamb for a few days on the day of preparation. The point is that you attach to it, and then it hurts when it has to be sacrificed. The point is that it does scour your heart a little bit. So by making worship easier, they're they're actually doing less than what God's asked because they're doing it for convenience. Here's the second thing. More and more people started to do this because they realized the scam. Here's the scam. You go through all the trouble of bringing Fluffy up to the sacrificial temple, and here's what happened in the first century. The priests would look at it because they had to inspect to see that it was flawless, perfect, and then they would look at it and go, ah, 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 it's got a flaw right here. You can't use this lamb. What a pain. So that's what happened last year. So this year, forget it. I'm just going to spend the money and buy an approved lamb. So the priests were actually building this practice up on purpose because they made more money. You could take a $100 lamb, but if it was approved for temple sacrifice, now it's a $1,000 lamb. So you could increase the value of the animal tenfold. This is why it's important here. This is a giant scam that by the first century, it was absolutely a den of thieves. So money changers are sitting there because they could then trade the money instead of the animal to do this. So why do you need a money changer in a temple that's for animal sacrifice? The only reason you need it is if you're bringing money to trade for the animal. Here's the other thing they would do. They would use false weights. So they would rip people off when they did this. And and so Jesus surveyed the city yesterday and he saw what was going on. And then I think it kept them up half the night going, dadgummit, they're not doing this how they should be. So this becomes his number one agenda the next day. It says that they sold doves. This is huge. This is a really big deal. You don't sell doves because doves were for the poor. Doves were supposed to be for people that had no money whatsoever, but they still loved God. They could go out and find a random dove in the city and bring it to the temple. And then the priest would say, ah, 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 that's not a perfect dove. You can't offer that to the God Almighty. So they would take a dove that you should be able to go out and trap and catch on your own, and they'd make you pay money for that dove. You should never sell doves. So the fact that it says that they're selling doves is keeping poor people from access to the temple of God. Absolutely wrong. Absolutely horrible. 
You don't have to give a dime to a church to come and hear the word of God. It's open to everybody. It's a courtyard of the Gentiles. So instead of leaving blessed, they just feel ripped off. It's like buying a slushy at Disneyland. You just feel <laughs> robbed. You're like, man, but they got you, you know, hey, $6 for a bottle of water. They got you. Where else are you going to get your water? So how else are you going to get that lamb up to the altar for God? You have to do it. God says to do it. But the only way to do it is to just fork out the cash every year. It's to the degree to where people know that this is happening. So the courtyard of the Gentiles filled with these. Verse 16 says he would not allow anybody. Jesus just takes charge. How does one guy stop a whole courtyard of merchants? Well, I, you stop the people coming in at the gate. You can't bring those wares in here. Get out. Leave. And, you know, if you go to a place and there's somebody just harassing you at the door, like that, yeah, okay, I don't want any trouble. And so Jesus just stands there and he does this. I don't think, I think one way to read this is like Jesus is in a wild rage, right? In the movies, it's always like him throwing tables and everywhere. It, it says he wouldn't allow anybody to bring the wares in. Stop. You can't bring that in here. He just starts taking charge. And I don't, by the way, I don't think this is a wild rage. I think Jesus does everything with purpose. But to carry wares in here is to do that. So if you want to get your, you know, Temple for Me in 33 t-shirt, you got to buy that outside the temple. You can't bring those wares in here. It's not going to happen. So verse 17, and this is why I don't think it's a wild rage. Then he taught. Get out of here. Clear it out. I think he got there pretty early in the morning for that to happen. You know, he didn't even eat breakfast. He was hungry when he passed the fig tree. It implies people, if he's teaching, it implies people could hear again. And I think this is a big deal. Part of the purpose of the courtyard to be cleared was so people could hear the teaching of the word. When Jesus talks, you should be able to listen to it without distraction. We make kind of a big deal about that here. Like we're not hyper-religious about anything, but when it's time for the teaching of the word, we try to do so without distractions, right? The attention should be on what the Bible says. And then we fellowship and all the attention can be back on everybody else. My house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations. He's quoting Isaiah 56, <laughs> but he says, is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations? In the Greek, he's using the possessive my. He doesn't say the Lord's house should be the house for all. He says my house. <laughs> right? So again, no, make no mistake what Jesus is doing here today. So this is from Isaiah 56. Oh, and this is really convicting. How can they pray when there's a noisy market there? But it's supposed to be a house of prayer. So if that's the idea, the court should be for anybody from out of town to come and do it. I want to read more of Isaiah 56. Again, a Jewish reader would know the context of that piece. I think as a Roman or Gentile reader, the point is being made perfectly fine in Mark. But there's some real gems here for people that know the Old Testament. Isaiah 56, verse 7. Even them I will bring into my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. See about the selling doves thing, how wrong that is? For my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations. The Lord God who gathers the outcasts of Israel says, Yet I will gather to him others besides those who are, who are gathered to him. It's a prophetic passage about the Messiah again. All you beasts of the field come to devour. All you beasts in the forest. His watchmen are blind. They're all ignorant. They're all dumb dogs. They can't bark. Who are the watchmen in Isaiah 56? The people who are supposed to be keeping track of things. The priests. They can't bark. 
sleeping, lying down, loving to slumber. Yep, they're greedy dogs and they've never had enough. And they're shepherds who cannot understand. And then they look all their own way, everyone for his own gain from his own territory. Worldliness is sin. And when the priests become agents that look just like the world, they're in sin. So when Jesus is saying this house of prayer comment, he's speaking to the Gentiles a voice of hope and truth. But to the priests standing around that know Isaiah 56, he's calling them dogs. And I just think we should know that as he's saying this. He's picking a fight here, which exactly is what is happening. The priests just take and take and take, and the foreigner's the one that needs to pay for it, and the foreigner should be the one that gets the free ride. Just Acts 8.30. This is happening in such a way that I, I think it's an interesting way to look at the story of Philip as he's as the, the eunuch is leaving Jerusalem, Acts 8, verse 30, Philip runs to him and heard him reading the prophet Isaiah and said, do you understand what you're reading? And he said, how can I unless somebody guides me? A foreigner shouldn't come to the temple for Passover and leave hungry. And, and isn't it interesting that he's reading Isaiah? Maybe he heard Jesus say this, and then he's trying to study it on his own. But he just went to the one place on the planet where somebody should be able to guide him and instruct him. And he's leaving Jerusalem hungry. And Philip fixes that. And he asked Philip to come and sit with him. It's tragic that people were leaving Jerusalem not being fed. They didn't understand the prophecies. They didn't know what the word said. The Pharisee instead looked down on the non-Jews and they didn't welcome them. We see, especially in the book of Matthew, how the Pharisees treated the Gentiles and the Samaritans. They wanted nothing to do with those people. So if they're not that important, we can use their courtyard for a sales market so we can make more money. They're thinking like suits. And it disgusts Jesus when this happens. So he says, you've made it a den of thieves. Uh, the full text of that one implies there's a consequence for being a den of thieves. A den of thieves is a t term that at this time was used. In the Middle Ages, this became a thieves' guild. It was a place where professional criminals could gather, discuss, and organize to rip people off. So this is the planning commission of uh, most county fairs. <laughs> How do we organize this so we can get as much money as possible out of people that we didn't earn and that we didn't deserve? So how can we limit things from this space so they have to spend their money in this space? It's a den of thieves. They're coordinated criminals. So the idea here is that they are okay with the identification of being, everybody knows the priests will rip you off. This is exactly the sin in the Old Testament. Remember when the sons of Aaron were going in and picking the choicest meat out of the bucket? And they got killed for this. It's absolutely criminal. But here you got an entire generation of priests that are planning to rip people off. Jeremiah 7.11. Has this house, which is called in my name, become a den of thieves in your eyes? Behold, I, even I, have seen it, says the Lord. The word seen it there is the Hebrew version of survey or to look over or to watch over something. It's prophetically perfect. But go now to my place, which was in Shiloh. Again, note the connection to the Psalms where they use that phrase Shiloh interchangeably with Jerusalem. Where I set my name at the first and see what I did to it because of the wickedness of the people Israel. It's prophetic. 
It's messianic. All these prophecies are tying together. And I love how Mark, he doesn't go out of his way to point that out. So a Jewish reader can pull that out of Mark. But for a Roman reader, they're just rolling through this story where he told those Pharisees that, because even the Romans knew that that was a big scam going on in the temple. Everybody knew it. So the fact that Jesus challenges it would have blessed the hearts of the Gentiles that wanted to know our God better and had the door blocked. Any church, I'm just, I got to critique this or I wouldn't be doing my job. Any church that has a planning committee to increase revenue is doing what these Pharisees did. It's an abomination to God to do this. So if as a church you're thinking of revenue streams and how to raise more money with the coffee shop and the t-shirt sales, you're doing something absolutely abhorrent to God. If the first thing I see when, the, when I walk in the door is a book rack that has books on sale, that's not good. It's taking that court of fellowship and turning it into a revenue source. So what they're doing is they're ripping people off spiritually and they're ripping people off financially. And the house of God is not being run as God plans. And just like the fig tree, which is a significant image too, the temple's being filled with sin and selfishness. It looks really pretty on the outside, and on the inside you get Disneyland. It's just not okay. 1 Corinthians 6.19, do you know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit? who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own. Let's get convicting with this. In the church age, where's the temple? You're the temple. Is what's inside of you filled with sin and corruption? How does God see when he surveys and he looks at your heart? What does he see in your heart? What does he see in me? What does he see in you? And this should be the thing that we go through our salvation with fear and trembling. And we're actively working on that. Some people are like, get all terrified and anxious by it. Good thing we have a good and loving God. But that if your heart pursues things that aren't of God, you have to deal with that. So they sought how to destroy him because they feared him. He was calling them out and, and successfully doing it for one day. Now, it doesn't say the markets didn't come back the very next day. But for one day, he, he was able to teach and Gentiles were able to learn. For one day, he took on that role. So, again, I think we can look at this and we can see the nature of God and how he thinks of someone who is calling their house a house of God, and then inside there's something different going on. They want to destroy Jesus. Jesus is wanting to wither this system up. It's got to end. It it was sufficient for Moses till now, but as of this point, an era has to come to an end. The reaction to a pure heart is friction with the world. The reaction of Jesus coming in and cleansing the temple is friction with the religious self-righteous. It's, you're going to go to bat with those people. If we want both godliness and sin in our life, it doesn't work. You can't have them both. So he rightly teaches the correct use of the temple, and then we see the phrase, all the people were astonished. <coughs> wow, this is so much better. This is a great idea. Jesus vividly clears the path for all to hear. Isaiah 62, one more prophecy. Go through, go through the gates. Prepare the way for the people. Build up, build up the highway. Take out the stones. Lift up the banner for all the peoples. And they shall call them a holy people, redeemed of the Lord. And you shall call, you shall be called sought out, a city not forsaken. The stones they're talking about there are the stumbling blocks. The job of the priests 
was to clear the roads that led to the cities of refuge so people could run to Jesus and not trip on things. And what they're doing is they're putting the stumbling blocks in the temple. And that becomes a problem. So I'm sure the scribes and Pharisees are thinking to themselves, well, this could end our money-making bonanza. This holy, pure thing would actually hurts our reputation a little bit. People are going to think we're thieves because he just called them thieves. However, for the Gentile, they're probably thinking, wow, salvation's for everybody. That means I can be welcomed in the temple too. I can actually have a shot at holiness. I know as a Gentile, that's how I think. Wow, Jesus just opened the gates. He prepared the way. He put up a banner in the Gentile court. So the people rejoice. The schemes of the nasty people are revealed, and that gets them really ticked off. But the good, decent people love Jesus for what he's doing. So they weren't doing their job in tending the fig tree while the master was away. What happens now? Going back to Jeremiah 8.13, I will surely consume them, says the Lord. No grapes shall be on the vine, nor figs on the fig tree, and the leaf shall fade, and the things I've given them shall pass away. Jeremiah intimately connects the fig tree image with how God will treat the people that haven't tended the fig tree. So the very presence of God is packing it all up and the judgment is coming and the leaves are going to wither. It's exactly what he's doing. Not a particularly subtle image even. Like sometimes prophecy, you got to stretch a little bit. This one, you really don't even have to stretch. It's literal. And Jesus makes that connection. So when evening had come, verse 19, he went out of the city. Now in the morning, interesting turn of phrase, Kai, evening had come, he went out of the city. Kai, in the morning, as they passed away. Again, it's this rhetorical rhythm that's coming on. Mark attaches the evening and going out of the city to the morning, too. It's all the same story. And he's connecting all these stories together. Comes in with the triumphant entry, that's king. The withering of the tree is prophet. The cleansing of the temple is priest. He's claiming all three roles. Kai in the morning as they passed by, they saw the fig tree dried up from the roots. That's miraculous. You know, a, a bad sunbeam hits a plant and the leaves wither, but to see the whole stalk withered would be a striking image. Especially if yesterday it was a big shiny tree, and now it's absolutely dead. And one day that just doesn't happen naturally. And Peter, remembered, remembering, said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree which you cursed has withered away. So Jesus answered and said to them, have faith in God. Kai, Jesus answered them. Kai said to them, have faith in God. So chapter two, he starts taking on the role of priest. He forgives, he accepts people, he gives allowance. uh, He defines the law. And in chapter three, one, he heals and defines what the Sabbath is. So he started taking on the roles of priest, but by cleaning out the temple, he's high priest. Chapters 3 and 4, he shows clear dominion and sovereignty over everything in the planet and on the earth, claiming king of the universe in action. But by marching up in a triumvirate, he claims it actually with the people too. Chapters 5 through 9 is a crash course on faith, how to live in faith, how to do faith, how to be applying faith. And, And it's a clear demonstration of how to live a godly life as a prophet would teach. But in the fig tree situation, the prophetic nature comes in along with king and priest. So when Peter says, Rabbi, look, (laughs) the last time they came by it, Jesus saw the tree and ran to it. This time, Peter sees the tree and points it out. 
Like there's a transition, a handoff that's happening. Frankly, the only difference with that tree was the word of Jesus Christ. And Jesus said a word and the tree has changed. In the Old Testament, it always says, thus says the Lord when a prophet speaks. Thus says the Lord. Over and over and over again. Jesus doesn't say, thus says the Lord, your leaves are going to wither. He just says, your leaves are going to wither. So that prophetic phrase is actually gone with Jesus in the book of Mark. And Mark might just be writing because that's what he saw. But the fact that Jesus never says, thus says the Lord, he just gives his own word at something, that never happens in the Old Testament. There's always a speaking on behalf of God. Jesus doesn't make that step. So Jesus goes out to the fruit tree. Now there's none. Jesus goes to the temple for fruit, and he leaves it because there was none. And he makes this passage, and he connects them both, and then he connects them here. It's dried from the roots up. A temple without Jesus is just a fancy building. It's just nothing. A church without Jesus is kind of a joke to the rest of the world. At his word, the tree dies completely, not just the leaves, but the roots and everything. So as he's dealing with the Mosaic temple system, we have this image here that it's all, it's why Christians don't go to temples or synagogues. The system is died from the roots up. There's no life there. So it's being rolled up in Isaiah 34, 4. It's being rolled up like a scroll. And when you roll up a scroll, it means you're done using that word to read from and get fruit from. And so this is the end of an era, a major era. The fig tree which you cursed has withered away, verse 21. It's the first use of these this fig tree thing that we've seen since Adam and Eve. It was a promise of fruit bearing to Israel. Deuteronomy 8.8, 8, uh, it, was, it was an image of Israel. 1 Kings 4.25, the fig tree is an image of safety. And now, Joel 1.7, he has laid waste to my vine and ruined my fig tree. He has stripped it bare and thrown it away. The branches are made white. Now it's prophetically tossed to the side. End of an era that's been prophesied. We read this with the teaching on prayer that comes in verse 23. Every time I've ever heard this taught on, the fig tree is an image of faith and prayer. And it is. And when we come back next week, we will treat it as an image of faith and prayer because that's exact. Jesus is handing things off to the disciples because the era is done. The next era to come along is the church. So he, that fig tree withers and he immediately teaches them how to operate as a church. And the transition happens right here. So I, at some level, when you take the semantic value of Kai, 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 verse 22 doesn't start with Kai. It's not part of the same section oratorically. Have faith in God is the end of the section. So it's interesting because I think in my translation that have faith in God was part of the next passage. But I don't know that it was when it was spoken oratorically. It was the end of the last passage. The triumphant entry, the fig tree, the cleansing of the temple. All together as one idea. So Kai, the triumphant, he came in like a king. Kai, he cleaned out the, the temple like a high priest. Kai, he spoke words that actually came true. And they were his own words. He's a prophet. So he builds up this devastating image of the temple ending and the symbol of God's love for everyone and the Gentiles all at the same time. All of this gets built up. It's terrifying, I think, for a Jewish reader, the disciples, to see their temple being threatened as ending from the roots up. This was a striking image for anyone that saw this. 
So there's awe that's here. It's inspiring if it's true. It's pretty significant if we just ended the Mosaic era and they're hearing that as disciples, like today's the day, it's done. And that the spirit of God gets lifted from there. They're singing, save us. Hallelujah means save us in the Hebrew. Save us from what? There's an insurmountable loss that's going on here. It's a problem that this is gone. And in that terror, I think, is where Jesus starts to teach, hey, if you just pray, we're going to move mountains. And the mountain that, might, the, the mountain that just got moved was mount, uh, the mount of the temple. And that, that temple's going to be shaken. It literally will have an earthquake that splits the veil down the middle of the, on the resurrection, like right at the crucifixion. We're gonna, there's going to be an earthquake that actually does damage to the temple. The punchline here is that you can have faith in God and you don't have to be terrified about a new era. The church era is going to be better than the temple era. Just get ready for it. I think we have the same terror today. You get people that get all worked up about prophecy and they're terrified of what's going to happen in the world. The end times are coming. The, the, the Antichrist and people get super worked up about that. But the era of the millennium is Jesus sitting on the throne. It's going to be better than the church age. Each era has gotten us closer to a relationship with the Lord and the Lord's rule over our lives. Don't be scared. Have faith. And if you pray for it and it's the will of God that you're praying for, you can move mountains. Have faith in God is the end of the section and it sets up the next section. Because there's, there's something here that's happening that's both awe-inspiring, astonishing, and terrifying. The Pharisees feared what was going to happen because their life was wrapped up in it. If you fear what's going to happen next because your life is wrapped up in this world, you're going to be terrified of the end times. You're going to be horrified of the troubles that are coming. But if your life is in Christ, you're, you're one of the people singing hallelujah, praise the Lord. I'm ready for the next era, Lord. I'm sick of what this world has done. The abomination of what people have done to the church, I'm tired of it. I'm tired of the name of Jesus being run through the gutter every time somebody uses it as a swear word. And now we broadcast it getting used as a swear word on television, on movies. We hear it everywhere. I'm tired of his name being dishonored. Hallelujah. Save us, Lord. Save us from all of this. Save us from the people ripping us off in the temple. Save us from the, the Pharisees that put a burden on us instead of lifting a burden on us. If you have faith in God as king, priest, and prophet, you don't need the temple anymore. Have faith in God. It's all wrapped up in Jesus. Have faith in as the one that can wither the temple era and start a new era and a new wineskin. Trust him that the new covenant's good. And then the new age is going to be a step towards him. If the temple's about to wither, and this is easy to see 2,000 years later, the temple withering was overall a good thing for this planet. Like the move from Judaism to Christianity has been a net plus for the planet Earth. And we can see that over 2,000 years. These disciples couldn't see that. If the temple's going to wither, where's the source of goodness coming from? Have faith in God. He knows what he's doing. And he hasn't lost control. He still sits on his throne. I say that a lot when I read the news. God's still on his throne. I know he's still on his throne. I know that this is all part of the plan. So now we got something worthy of hearing about. I think that when he says have faith in God, Jesus has got their utmost attention for the second half of this chapter. They are on edge of their seats waiting to hear what he's going to say next. And if Peter's oratorically presenting this, Kai, 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 have faith in God. Everybody's waiting for the next thing. 
And the next thing is this talk about prayer, this new way to talk to God. I don't have to walk up to the temple and give a sacrifice. I can literally speak to God in my heart and in with my mouth, and it works. Remember, this is the, the cornerstone of the new church, is the idea that we can pray without killing a sheep. Like just an open door to the kingdom. For now, you have lots of leaves to cover up your sin. And there may or may not be fruit in your life, but are you hiding under that fig leaf? Are you hiding that there's no fruit? Or are you cultivating and tending to the tree to what people see on the inside when they get to know you better? There's actually fruit there. There's something beautiful coming out of your heart. Tend to the tree. So if you fear God, you fear what's coming next. Next week, we'll repeat verse 22 and read it with the prayer passage too because it's a key kind of hinge in these things. But as for today, let's just think about the degree to which we have a, an outside image that people see. And as people get to know us, is there going to be fruit? When they, when they take the time to get to know us, will they find fruit? And I, I think that's the most exciting part of this passage. But also for me, like I got to start tending to my life. I got to get the sin out of my temple. I can't be making this into a courtyard or a den of thieves. I have to switch my heart around to do the opposite of what I thought. I have to. And it's a serious thing to take stock in. It's why the disciples were on their edge of their seat. What do we do now? Run from the prison that we've created for ourselves and pray that those leaves can wither. Anything that I've got as an outward display, I just pray those things wither. All I want to, people to see is Jesus. I don't want them to see me anymore. And I want to read a chapter of the Bible and what comes into the ears of everybody is the Bible and not my opinion, not what I think about it. So there's commentary here, but my prayer is you're going back through it. You're reading it for yourself. Read the rest of the chapter under the lens of the what Peter just got doing. Pretend that you're hearing him in the courtyard and he's about to give you an altar call. And as you go through this week, just keep reading chapter 11 and just see if that doesn't just work on your heart, even as a mature believer. And just keeps giving you that encouragement you need to keep working on the sin in your life. And make that your focus. Tend to your heart. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Dear Lord and King, we thank you for your word. Like we thank you for, for Mark for writing this down. We thank you for Peter for teaching it and discipling Mark. We thank you that this is a gospel that comes out of the relationship between two men that loved you. And, and put you first and highest. I thank you that Peter is unapologetic. I thank you that his gospel is a tough one to hear because it is absolutely all in or nothing. And I thank you for the way in which he presents it, the way in which he says it. Lord, I thank you that you've opened our eyes and ears to it. Help us to understand not just what it says, but what it says to us and how you're trying to speak to us. Soften the soil of our hearts so that the seed of your word can take root and instead of withering to the root, Lord, it'll grow up from the root and your word will bear fruit in our lives. Lord, may we speak to others in a way that, that blesses them all the time. May we be a blessing uh, and may we be a blessing, Lord, that speaks with the truth of God coming out of our mouth because we know your word and we know what it says. In Jesus' name, amen.
If you found this teaching helpful, insightful, you can support this podcast by sharing it with a friend. Screenshot it, tag it, post it on your social media.